Specialty Story, session number 218. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. This week, I'm talking to a neurosurgeon who specializes in brain tumors. Dr. Kumar Vasuvidan is a neurosurgeon specializing in brain and spine tumors out of Atlanta. He's been practicing now for a year out of his fellowship training. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Vasuvidan first became interested in neurosurgery. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I, you know, like many folks uh, who enter medicine, I had a you know personal uh, brush with the field that kind of inspired it. My my grandmother had uh, a brain tumor diagnosed when I was very small, um, and uh, you know it was at that point when it first dawned on me that that people that dealt with the brain medically uh, existed in any kind of way, and I thought that was very cool. I didn't really understand, you know, at the time what was going on with her, uh, but I knew that uh, the brain was very fascinating, and um, I, I kind of latched on to that, and, and while I explored a lot of other things uh, in the years to come, um, I never really left that interest behind, uh, and then when I started learning more about the anatomy of it in, in medical school, just continued to, to fall more and more in love with it, and then once I got a chance to go to the operating room, I, I decided this is where I wanted to spend my time, so... Nice. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around neurosurgery out there that you're constantly fighting, whether it's among uh, medical students or other doctors? Um, I, I would say, um, you know, if you talk to other doctors, neurosurgeons tend to have a reputation that precedes ourselves, uh, <laughs> whether it's good or bad. Um, you know, we it's, it's uh, in, in many places, it tends to be very high risk, high reward work. And um, that, that, I think, um, scares some people and tracks some people. Uh, but uh, I, I think the biggest misconception that I see is that um, somehow it is, it is beyond uh, uh, people's reach or they feel like it's something that they, they don't even want to explore uh, because um, it's somehow beyond their understanding or beyond their ability. And um, I think that the system of, of training neurosurgeons among other surgical subspecialists um, has become such that, um, you know, with, with enough effort, enough dedication to the field, um, uh, anyone uh, with the right attitude uh, can do this job and do it well. Mm. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good neurosurgeon? Um, I think uh, just what I, what I talked about before, uh, which would be uh, first and foremost, um, attention and detail and a, uh, a constant need to, um, uh, to want to improve. Uh, as with um, you know, any other job in medicine, you, you oftentimes learn more uh, in the first few years of a career, which is where I am right now, uh, than during your training. And it's a constant uh, assessment and reassessment of uh, what you're doing well, what you're doing poorly. And, um, you know, with a, with a very technical field like neurosurgery, sometimes that means having to uh, 
practice techniques or go into the lab and study more. Um, and I, the, the most successful surgeons that I admire the most are the ones who do that the most. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Always something more to learn and to, to stay in touch, especially when the data shows that most, most physicians practice how they were trained, however many years ago that was, which is not a good thing. Um, as you were going through, you mentioned that you had some early exposure to uh, a grandparent who had a brain tumor, and so that's some early exposure. As you were going through medical school, were there any specialties that were like, oh, maybe I would really enjoy that instead of neurosurgery? You know, I, I think I was, uh, in talking to other neurosurgeons, I was fairly unique in that I, I truly enjoyed all of my rotations and, and things like that that, that we did. Um, I, I kind of a, approached it as this was my uh, one chance to really learn about this and, and, um, and understand a field that I may not be going into. Um, you know, I, uh, one thing that really surprised me was how much I enjoyed uh, medicine, uh, internal medicine. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed uh, the complexity of it, the complex problems and decision making. And believe it or not, I think it dovetails nicely with what I do now. Uh, which is that especially taking care of cancer patients, uh, there's a need to uh, at least wrap your head around uh, the individual as a whole, all of their, whatever medical problems they, they bring to bear, uh, because that really affects the treatment of their cancer, even if, it, even if we are just considering the brain and the spine um, uh, in terms of their tumor treatment, the, um, you know, the, the entire, uh, the, the, their, their, told, their whole treatment rests on understanding those other problems. So, um, I really enjoyed everything going through, and I, I'm hopeful that that makes me better going forward. Yeah, I, I'm assuming as as a neurosurgeon who who specializes in in brain and spine tumors, the patients coming to you already have imaging that show whatever disease process taking place, and you're there to see if you can help in some way, kind of the treatment wise, and not necessarily more diagnosis or anything like that. Is that correct? I'd agree with that. Sure. For the student listening to this, who loves the kind of Sherlock Holmes of medicine, the, the figuring out of what's going on, is neurosurgery a good field for them? Or is it, or, or do you find that you really need to love kind of the fixing of things and not necessarily a diagnosis? I think you, you can't really have one without the, without the other. Let me say, I'll, I'll say this first, which is that, you know, fundamentally, Ours is a field of, just like any surgical field, of anatomy in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You have to have an appreciation for it. And most of the things that we do are to, are to fix anatomy that is broken, disrupted, um, whether it's by a tumor or a, a vascular problem or a, or a spinal issue. And so that fundamental fact is there and, and, you know, and probably won't change for any surgical subspecialty. Mm -hmm. But the, the, um, the Sherlock Holmes aspect of it is still very interesting in the sense that we get, as you and your listeners probably know, more and more scans done on folks every year that pick up more and more things that may or may not need treatment. And the hardest part of being a surgeon is not what happens in the operating room. It's understanding what you see before and after an operation you can deal with and fix and uh, whether you're actually treating the right thing. So, for instance, I recently treated uh, a man who. Um, had unknown lesions within the brain, which could have been any of a wide variety of things, a tumor being one of them. And uh, that was a true, a definite diagnostic uh, hmm. process where I was being asked to be a technician 
uh, and um, and biopsy a piece of this. But uh, before I go and expose somebody to the risk of biopsying a brain lesion, you have to fully understand and be able to appreciate the wide range of diagnoses that there could be and make sure those are appropriately ruled out by your workup. So um, uh, an aspect of that is always there. Yeah. Interesting. So you get a, a little bit of everything potentially as well. Definitely. What does a typical day or typical week look like for you? Uh, I would say uh, it, it varies uh, a fair amount, which is one of the reasons I, I love the field. But um, I, I typically uh, will have uh, a couple days reserved for the operating room and a couple days uh, in the clinic uh, per week. And then uh, one day that's sort of a flex day uh, to offload other aspects of my job. Um, uh, as uh, sort of earlier on in my career, um, you know, I, in order to, uh, I take a lot of call and in order to help those patients, I sometimes have to fit things, uh, things around uh, those days. But typically my operative days will start at around 7.30 in the morning and then I'm done, you know, around 5 p.m. at night. Um, and my clinic days, uh, you, you know, are similar, similar uh, hours. But, um, you know, when duty calls, when you're on call and things like that, it can come at all hours of the night. Yeah. What, what does that call look like for you? How, how often are you on call? Uh, I am on call um, right now, I would say about five to six times, five to six days per month. It's really, it's, it's not too bad mm. at, at the particular hospital where I, where I work. There are other neurosurgeons who work at trauma centers and things where the call is much more burdensome. So that aspect of your uh, career can be somewhat individualized. And, and is call, what, what does that look like in terms of needing to come in in the middle of the night? I, I'm assuming like for brain tumors, a lot of that's going to be like, we know about it. It's not going to be super urgent showing up in the middle of the night or, or can there be like a brain tumor growing? And then all of a sudden there's a complication in the middle of the night for someone to come in and need you. There are very rare things that can happen. For instance, pituitary tumors can can hemorrhage and cause visual loss and things like that. Those are true surgical emergencies. But for the most part, you're right. Um, brain tumors, uh, you know, can be treated urgently but not emergently. There are other problems. For instance, spine tumors can cause sudden paralysis. Those sorts of things we tend to act on immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, they tend to be fairly rare. As neurosurgeons, um, we still, you know, no matter what subspecialty interest you're in, you still see the common things that a lot of neurosurgeons see. So hydrocephalus bleeds within the brain um, of various kinds, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage with, you know, as a result of ruptured aneurysms, things like that always will happen. Um, and, uh, you know, so there, there is, a, there is a not infrequent that something needs to happen in the middle of the night. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Uh, I, I think I do. And especially, um, you know, at, at this uh, at this point in my career, when um, I'm trying to you know really build up my practice and try to be as much help to people as possible, uh, even then, you know, um, you you just silo time away and you rely on a very helpful uh, partner, which my wife is unbelievable and helps me to do that, and and we make it happen. Yeah. What does the training path look like? So so four years of medical school, and then what's next? Um, after that, uh, you enter a neurosurgery residency program, which um, all neurosurgery residency programs now are a minimum of seven years. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, many neurosurgeons uh, go on to general uh, neurosurgery practice. Um, and uh, some choose to take extra fellowship time, which can be a year or uh, sometimes two years um, after your neurosurgery res residency. A minimum of seven years. That's a long time. 
<laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Did, did that timing ever kind of dissuade you of like, that's a, that's a long time. I could just go do internal medicine three years done. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely did. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, you, you, you can never not, uh, pay attention to it, especially, you know, medical students who have families or significant others, partners, um, that, uh, have their own, uh, priorities and things like that to consider. Yeah. Um, you know, I always thought about it as I, I knew I, um, I wanted to engage in specialty medicine of some kind and kind of across the board, um, in, in a lot of different fields that takes, you know, five, six, seven years to get to that point. What is the, it's interesting. I've never really asked this question or, or thought about it in this way, but what's the, I don't know if justification is the right word because it's accusatory, but what's the, ju- I'll use it anyway. The justification, do you think for, for seven year residency, is it, is it technical skills? Cause it, it's not necessarily anatomy and physiology. Is it, what, what's the reason behind it being so long? Um, you know, I, I'll just tell you, I'll speak from my personal experience and what I thought was the most helpful about it. So, uh, the field is so interdisciplinary and, uh, relies on knowledge of so many other things. For instance, in many places, as it was in my residency program, the first year is very foundational in that you are of course, rotating through lots of different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second year is, uh, spent purely boots on the ground, learning to, um, take care of neurosurgical patients and do their critical care in the ICU as well. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, we operated through those first two years and, and learned the basics of the operating room. Uh, but a lot of time is spent really on just that foundational um, that foundational approach. Um, and then one thing I will say that is seems to be built into most neurosurgery programs is towards the end of the residency, uh, a kind of transition to practice feel where the amount of autonomy that is given to senior neurosurgery residents is, is quite a bit. Um, operative autonomy, decision-making autonomy, of course, with oversight from attending physicians. But um, I think uh, the, the stakes tend to be very high. And uh, I, I appreciate it. And I think other folks appreciate that model um, to handle high-stakes decision-making uh, later on. And that mm-hmm. takes years to develop. Yeah. From your point of view, uh, before your point of view, neurosurgery is known to be one of the more competitive specialties out there, likely because of just the, the there's not a lot of spots in the country. What, what do you think makes a, a student stand out in the residency process? Um, you know, I, I think things may have changed, of course, from when I went through and no doubt are even more competitive now than they were. Um, you know, in my experience, uh, board scores and grades and things like that, that your advisors will tell you, of course, very important and get your foot in the door. But because neurosurgery is such a small field and so interconnected, uh, the folks, uh, who are the decision makers really rely a lot on, um, uh, word of mouth and personal recommendations, uh, and things like that, um, which I think speak a lot more to someone's ability. And so, um, you know, the, the folks who I worked alongside with, who I, I really admired and I saw were appreciated, uh, were not only, uh, you know, very smart and, and, and did their hard work, but uh, were very much kind of nose to the grindstone and, and in taking care of patients and always trying to do the right thing and push for uh, patients to uh, be well taken care of. Um, and sometimes that means running up against the inefficiencies of every hospital system um, and learning how to work around that and just, and just get things done. Um, is an underappreciated skill that is not 
not measured by by test taking, but is definitely noticed and can be reported when application time comes. Yeah. Now, your subspecialty within the neurosurgery world is brain and spine tumors. Once you get to that level, are, are people kind of done with training and fellowship, or can you go on and be the the glio uh, guy and and or gal and and do some more training and, and be that kind of tumor doctor. I mean, there's, there's honestly no, no, uh, no end to it. And, you know, <laughs> when you, when you get down to that level, you're talking about going to, you know, visit certain individual people to look at how they do X, Y, and Z or their techniques. There are, you know, uh, now we, as neurosurgeons, not only treat things operatively, but we do uh, radiation and radio surgery and there are dedicated uh, training programs for that. Um, it's, you know, there, there is, no end to what you can learn and and should learn, but I think most people, after they do a uh, a fellowship or something, you know, figure out a way to pick up those skills uh, through other ways, through yeah. other means. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a a good long journey to go down. the The osteopathic student listening to this neurosurgery is is one of those that is is very hard for the osteopathic student just looking at data. What do you think they need to do to overcome any negative bias that may be out there? That's that's a very very difficult question. Um you know, uh, as a non-osteopathic student, I'll say I I know there there are some programs that are of course dedicated to osteopathic uh students within neurosurgery. Um and then you know, the other the other thing that I'll say is um I have I've seen folks uh, either um, foreign medical grads or osteopathic students or some students who, um, by traditional measures, may be considered less competitive, uh, have found success in kind of um, finding a mentor that is well-connected within the field, um, doing work with them and proving their abilities uh, in other ways over a longer period of time. Um, for some folks, it means you know spending summer or, or um, a year or something with those folks uh, it may mean, um, you know, doing dedicated rotations in those areas. But uh, again, a personal recommendation um, from somebody well-connected in the field, I think, means a lot. Yeah. It's all about who you know. <laughs> Not all, but it, it helps. Uh, it helps. It definitely helps, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on uh, who, you, who, who you are and the, the connections that you do have. What do you wish for the for the... Um, Maybe the primary care docs out there, maybe the neurologists who who may be referring patients to you. What do they? What do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out as a neurosurgeon to help you and to help your patients? I think that um, you know the the days of um, the neurosurgeon kind of standing atop everyone and just saying yes no for surgery, uh, I think are on their way out. Um, mm -hmm. Is the feeling that I get. Uh, the field as a whole um, has become much more interdisciplinary, much more collaborative, um, and uh, we, you know, we as surgeons are are really trying to um, increase our success and improve our outcomes. And we recognize that we can only do that in collaboration with with uh, those physicians. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, picking up the phone and calling us to discuss a case is something that is supremely helpful. Um, and we might have something to offer surgically that might be more minimally invasive than originally thought, or might be from a different route than originally thought. Uh, where folks who uh, traditionally might not be surgical candidates, for instance, for a number of reasons, you know, all of that may be changing. So, uh, you know, we really 
I've been so lucky in my current job to work well with the neurologists, the primary care docs, the oncologists in this area. Um, and I think the paradigm is shifting. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into neurosurgery? <laughs> um, you know, I, you, you, I think as a medical student, think you understand the concept of, of lifelong learning. <laughs> um, and uh, I think you don't really understand it as much as you do when you're done with training and you understand just how much you don't know. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I look at that as a, as a welcome challenge now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I wish no, medical students understood no matter what you go into uh, that, um, things are changing so rapidly that it, it takes a level of dedication, uh, that's the same or e perhaps even more than you had as a, as a medical student, um, to do the best for your patients. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great words. What do you like the most about being a neurosurgeon? Um, I, I like that, um, I, I like that patients, uh, when they come to see us, you know, nobody wants to see a neurosurgeon. Um, and I always tell folks, you know, I, I would love to help you, but I hope you never are my patient. <laughs> and, um, I, I like that, uh, in spite of that, um, you know, we can, we can really build strong relationships with patients because of that, because, you know, if, if somebody comes in the door and they're very afraid of you and, and, uh, uh, afraid of the inevitable conversation that you have to have about surgery. If you can take that, turn it around and give them comfort and uh, perform an operation that can uh, help them solve their problem, there's nothing like building a relationship on that ground. Um, and so I really appreciate that. Yeah. What do you like the least? Um, I, 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 the flip side of that, which is, you know, my job, uh, you, you see unfortunate outcomes to fair amount because of the nature of the disease that we're, uh, that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. uh, even since I started my training, you know, uh, more than a decade ago now, um, things have changed so rapidly in the treatment of many brain tumors, in particular metastatic brain tumors. Um, but uh, things like, you know, glioblastoma and um, uh, other types of brain injuries, you know, we have a long way to go on that front. And so, it's, it's hard sometimes to see that, uh, but it's motivating at the same time. I, I had a conversation with a pediatric cardiologist uh, once, uh, not cardiologist, pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon, rather. Um, and, and he said, based on his job and the patients that are coming to him, that they're kind of, he is their last resort. And there are lots of bad outcomes for those patients. But any patient where he can get a good outcome is a huge win. Is that kind of how you look at neurosurgery? These patients coming in with tumors and it's their, you're their last resort and, and you're helping out as much as possible. Like how do, how do you, how do you handle that kind of, uh, pressure is what a lot of students will say is like, I don't want to handle that pressure. Uh, how do you, how do you handle that? I, I think, you know, I, I identify a lot with that. I think, um, what I will say is that a lot of that is mitigated by, uh, by building the right relationship with someone um, before surgery even happens. So, uh, you know, I, I think I, one of my mentors um, that I learned from in fellowship, uh, I was so uh, kind of struck by the amount of time he spent with each patient beforehand. And, uh, you know, he would always say, um, you know, this is our one chance to get this right. Um, because uh, God forbid, if anything happens, you, the, you cannot, 
build this foundation later on after surgery is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I really, I, I pay a lot of attention to that because folks, uh, no matter what kind of physician you are, you know, people want to trust you. They, 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 uh, want help. Mm-hmm. And, um, if you, uh, you know, reach out and, and take that and, and I, you know, I, I think it really, really makes a difference and say that, okay, we have this thing that we've identified that needs to be treated, needs a surgery. You and I are going to do this together. And that means that I understand what I can do and you need to understand what you can bring to this, which are expectations about the, the things that might happen and can happen. Yeah. Um, and so I think that shifts the conversation from being, this is the last resort to let's solve this problem together. And I think that uh, not only takes some, some of the stress away, but leads to better outcomes for everyone. Yeah. In the oncology world, targeted therapies are becoming uh, kind of all of the rage and, and hopefully bringing a lot more um, better outcomes for patients. How much is that taking hold in the neurosurgery world? Uh, it is um, night and day in terms of our, our management of folks. Um, you know, when I started my training, if you saw somebody with metastatic melanoma to the brain, we hardly ever offered an operation because uh, the the outcomes associated with that finding um, were, were poor, needless to say. And now with um, immunotherapies, I'm just giving one example, you know, folks are, are living very, very long with that. And with the other non-operative interventions that we have in neurosurgery, for instance, radiosurgery, um, we have gone from, um, you know, having patients with, with widespread metastatic disease, for instance, in the brain, to, you know, we, we treat these and we, and we watch and patients, um, uh, you know, stay stable in terms of their intracranial disease for years and years. And so uh, it's really, you know, it been a revolution in the non-operative treatment of these folks too. And there have been just as many operative, you know, therapies that have, that have come along too to help. So it, it has been truly night and day since these were introduced. Wow. That's crazy. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a, a neurosurgeon specializing in those brain and spine tumors? Uh, I yes, I, I mean I, I would say yes, just because nothing, everything really interested me when I went to medical school, and um, I love physiology, I love being in the anatomy lab, um, but nothing quite bit me like like neuro. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know I I just can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Any final words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about neurosurgery and, and uh, brain and spine tumor as a potential career? Uh, yeah, don't be intimidated. Um, mm-hmm. I that I, I, that's um, oftentimes easier said than done. But um, I hear and see folks who, uh, you know, don't look, you know, they're, they're intimidated by going on their surgery rotation or meeting a surgeon or going to see a neurosurgeon. And I think there may have been years in the uh, reason to, to be that way in the past. Uh, but uh, it's about finding the right people to attach onto. And just like in every other field in neurosurgery, there are some really passionate educators out there who, who want to bring people, uh, want to bring students into our field and show you just how great it is. And uh, if you have some interest in what we do, take a chance, uh, even as a first year medical student, or even before that, you know, uh, talk to somebody, get into the operating room, see it as what, see what it is that we do. Um, and I think you'll be, you'll be pleasantly surprised. 
All right, there you have it again, Dr. Kumar Vasuvidan, a neurosurgeon, talking about brain and spine tumors and what he does, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and so much more. Hopefully, this was helpful for you to give you some understanding of what a neurosurgeon does and a specialist in neurosurgery specializing in brain and spine tumors. We have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.